Macworld Podcast number 75, The Love Edition, for February 14th, 2007, sponsored by MYOB, Small Business Management Software. MYOB helps you to mind your own business smarter. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. And yep, as the podcast released on Valentine's Day, this is the Love Edition. Later in the show, Seattle Times columnist and frequent Macworld contributor Glenn Fleischman shares his 802.11N passion with Macworld's executive print editor, Dan Miller, in an interview from last month's Macworld Expo. We also feature a tender look at digital rights management and a roundtable discussion between yours truly and Macworld's Philip Michaels and Jonathan Seff. But before we turn to matters of the heart, it's time for a brief look at the week's news. And because this is the love edition of the Macworld podcast, I'd like to turn the lights down low. Yeah, that's it. And gaze upon some of the more beautiful things that have occurred recently. Take Google's Gmail, for example. Oh, baby, I love that free email service. The way you make it so easy to view my mail on the web and... Even better, letting me access Gmail through a pop account. Your seemingly endless storage, nearly three gigabytes of email storage. Oh, and your spam filtering, your spam filtering. If only Apple's mail did the job half as well as you do, my lovely, lovely Gmail. Oh yeah, at one time, you are a rare creature. Letting only those with a special kind of invitation take you out. But today... You belong to everyone, as Google has dropped its invitation-only limit. Oh, baby, I'm so glad you're mine. I wish I could say the same for Microsoft's latest operating system release, Vista. I recently gazed out over this Vista, installing the Vista Home Premium Edition on my Mac Pro, and I have to tell you, Vista's a tease. Oh, yeah, she looks like something you could love. Those sleek lines and the oh-so-sexy see-through arrow effect that will remind you of Aqua, your current lover. But dig down and you discover a heartbreaker. Run Vista under Parallel's desktop for Mac and you lose the arrow effect. Parallel's emulation just isn't studly enough to pull it off. Audio playback under Parallel stutters with Windows Media Player. Yeah, it's a bit better under Boot Camp, but it's still occasionally there. Oh, sure, Vista's pretty, but after a few hours with her, I couldn't help but miss the little things that her sister XP used to do for me when I ran her on my Mac. Like, mostly working, for example. Oh, Vista, baby, I hate to let you down, particularly on Valentine's Day, but baby, you just don't meet my needs, and honey, my Mac and I have some powerful, powerful needs. Oh, sorry, not quite sure what came over me there. Uh, and now from the floor of last month's Macworld Expo, Dan Miller talks wireless with Glenn Fleischman. The uh, next trend that we wanted to talk about was the uh, advent of what's called 802.11n. It's a Wi-Fi standard. Uh, we currently use 802.11g in our airport extreme uh, networking. And to talk about that, we've got Glenn Fleischman. He produces Wi-Fi Networking News, a daily account of wireless data networking. He's a freelance writer, contributes regularly to Macworld, The Economist, New York Times, and Popular Science. And he's down here covering the show for the Seattle Times. Very, very entertaining show from my perspective for 3G and 802.11. Thank you for coming by. So, yeah, I mean, I had a whole list of questions here. Um, 
that I had to throw out yesterday because uh, some of Apple's announcements changed everything. But perhaps you could start at the beginning and explain what 802.11n is. Sure. Well, there's a standards body called the IEEE. It's an engineering standards body, and they like to use things like 802.11n to designate specific working groups within this larger structure. And uh, so ordinary human beings should never say things like 802.11, but unfortunately it's the best nomenclature we have. The best we can do. Yeah, so there was 802.11b was an early group that was a task group that came out of the this working group, and they came up with uh, what was adopted as uh, airport by Apple, and everyone else called 802.11b, and it ran at a raw rate of 11 megabits per second. Okay. Then came um, 802.11g for the mass market, which runs at 54 megabits per second at a raw rate, and that's Airport Extreme uh, and Airport Express both use 802.11g. Industry standard, there's been some extensions to it. Different companies have different tweaks to make it run faster, run further. But 802.11g has been ruling the roost since Apple introduced their first products in uh, January of 2003. And, and just to make it clear, the, uh, the idea behind a standard is that there is, in fact, some interoperability. Yeah. So a, a you can use group. other people's 802.11g products with your Mac. Right, and that's what Wi-Fi is. Wi-Fi is a trade group that certifies interoperability of products that we, you know, we call wi- things Wi-Fi or 802.11 interchangeably, but there's actually a group that goes out, huh. they have these certification labs worldwide, and they test stuff, and it fails, and about a third of the products that go through their labs fail and cannot be stamped Wi-Fi until they're fixed and go back through. And that's one reason why Wi-Fi devices mostly work together. Yeah. So... So we can come in here to the show, and, and our Macs all get online pretty Generally, with very No matter what kind of hardware they're using back there. Okay, so now we have 802.11n. Right. This has been in the works for more than two years. Task Group N within this engineering group had said, you know, 54 megabits per second, that's the rated speed. That's how many bits go through or the symbol rate that goes through the air when you use uh, when you use Airport Extreme. But in reality, you can only get a little bit above 20 megabits per second of real throughput of actual files or images over a Wi-Fi network that's running 802.11g. So the goal of N was to ratchet that way up. They wanted throughput over 100 megabits per second in good circumstances. In some cases, maybe as fast as 300 or even 450 megabits per second. Uh, and so the, the raw speed, like the number you'll see is 150 megabits per second for what Apple's making, what Linksys and other companies are currently shipping in an early version. But but that really means, you know, it's not going to be a half or a third of that speed. Is When Apple says our airport extreme with N, which they're not labeling it very clearly, right. is five times faster than our cur- you know, our existing airport extreme, they're actually probably being uh, fairly realistic about that number. Wow. And just for the sake of, you know, to, to ground it in reality, what can you do at those speeds that, say, you couldn't do at 802.11g speeds? Number one is video. It's, right. You can do video over 802.11g. There are companies that have specifically re- released products that are tweaked so that they do, they prioritize video, they use some standards around video, they make sure that you don't get Twitter and Flutter and all kinds of other nasty stuff when you're trying to watch something. Because we notice any artifacts in video, you notice uh, immediately, your eye right. picks it up, so it has to be thorough. When you uh, quintuple the amount of bandwidth that's available, you have to play fewer games to get good video across, say, a home network with a device like an Apple TV, perhaps. For example. For example. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll explain. I saw a demo of another company's 802.11n product, and what they were doing was were streaming multiple streams of HD video around the house, which 802.11g simply wouldn't support. You might be able to support That's one video stream, but, but not multiple uh, high-def streams. That's what it boils down to. If you're doing standard video, 802.11g is capable with a lot of provisos. And if you want to do high-def 
with the right equipment, you can do 802.11g. But the next generation, the reason that at CES, every company that sells the consumer electronics show that just ended in Las Vegas, every company that does anything with home networking or wireless was showing their early 802.11n products is they want to be part of IPTV, Internet Protocol Television, where like AT&T or another company brings a fiber optic line or a high-capacity cable line into your home, and they want that to come into your home to a box and then use N to redistribute that video that's coming into any device in your home. That's where they can make the most money off you. They get you to upgrade your your digital service, and they get you to upgrade all of your electronics and all of your networking gear. So they're very anxious to get everyone to adopt this new networking equipment. Makes perfect sense. So not to get too deep into the, 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 the geeky details, but the standard, as I understand it, there's a standard out there that isn't yet ratified. Right. Now, what does that mean to you and to, to regular people? The, the wheels of standards process grind but slowly is what that means. So if you're waiting for standards, uh, you know, you're not going to see them happen anytime soon because the point is there's all this accommodation and compromise when different companies get together and even academics and others to come up with what they think is the best solution that everyone can implement. So the IEEE has been working on 802.11n for years. A lot of grand compromises have happened. The specification isn't done, but companies are chomping at the bit because uh, uh, because of all this this video purpose right. and IPTV. And throughout 2006, we've seen what's been labeled draft end products released, which were based on an early draft, which is now being superseded. In fact, this week, the IEEE is voting on the next draft, which will likely be the one that reaches completion. So what Apple has released, and this is going to be the tricky part, what Apple has released, what everyone has released to date, there's been some real questions about can you use firmware to upgrade that equipment so it will be fully compatible with the final ratified version of the standard, which isn't due till next year, but it's going to be only tiny things that change between now and next year. Apple's betting, yes, this is firmware upgradable to this full capacity. There's hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment in people's homes now that they're hoping is going to be fully upgradable to what's finally adopted. Right. And what's interesting is that actually several Macs have shipped already with N <laughs> hardware in them, right? That's right. Apple released the, the a well-known secret, which was people had already broken apart their MacBooks and their iMacs and found, hey, wait a minute, I'm seeing an Ethereum model, you know, HD 53702 chip in here. That's an 802.11n chip. And posted pictures on a lot of different Mac uh, hobbyist websites. And Apple's, Apple didn't enable the faster mode. It looked just like Airport Extreme. And now they said, as of yesterday, when they ship the Airport Extreme with N enabled in February, the base station, it will come with an enabler package, which I expect will also be bundled into some kind of system updater or right. firmware updater that will just magically turn on a mode that's five times faster in all but a single model of Core 2 Duo chip-based products that have shipped. So one 17-inch, 1.83 gigahertz iMac with Core 2 Duo cannot be upgraded via firmware. But the other ones already had N hardware. They have N, and they just need a firmware upgrade, and then you get the advantage of the speed. Now, in theory, if you had one of these early draft N products from another vendor, do you Mm -hmm. think it would work? Do we have any idea if it would work with what Apple's putting out? I doubt it will work today, but I believe that there's been enough of a commitment by the companies in place that what's going to happen is the Wi-Fi Alliance is going to have a certification process for this draft. So in uh, March or April, they're going to announce a process where 
the work that's been done to date can go through testing labs and all the companies can go back and tweak their firmware. And so okay. just like when 802.11g, Apple released their Airport Extreme six or seven months before 802.11g was finalized in 2003, and they shipped six or seven firmware upgrades over the course of 2003 to bring it into full compliance with other devices. The same thing will happen, maybe fewer upgrades with what Apple's releasing uh, uh, in next month. Okay. Um, have you ordered your... Uh, airport Extreme yet? I, ha- I have not. I have not. But I will. I need to test it. I have to revise some books, among yeah. other things. Well, great. Any questions about 802.11m, wireless networking in general? Will N equipment be able to work on networks that already have B and G equipment on them? Yeah, yeah. The um, the 802.11 group has been very smart, and everything is a superseding standard. So 802.11 G supported 802.11 B as well. 802.11 N will fully support B and G. It's also going to do something interesting, which is Apple chose to implement a more complicated version of N, which supports two different frequency bands. So back in 2003, there was a standard called 802.11 A. Meant mostly it was a it uses the five gigahertz band where G and B use the 2.4 gigahertz band didn't get wide adoption. It's now find much wider adoption in voice over IP in the uh, corporate world. And Steve Jobs said, 802.11a is dead. We're going with 802.11g, this new sexy thing. Well, in fact, the new airport extreme will support 802.11a, which is a, basically a great way for it to work in corporations that also right. use N or A. Okay. Okay, we're going to have to move along right. here. Um, but thank you very much, Glenn. I appreciate your time. Pleasure. And now, before we move on to our discussion of digital rights management, a word from our sponsor, MYOB. What do Mac small business owners want from their business management and accounting software? MYOB knows they want the same features that their Windows-using counterparts do. That's why their premium small business management and accounting software for the Mac, Account Edge, offers fully integrated payroll, multi-user access, and credit card processing, same as their Windows version. Because sometimes... We don't think that differently. To learn how MYOB can help your small business, visit myob-us.com. MYOB. Mind your own business. Smarter. Digital rights management has been in the news a lot recently, thanks to an open letter from Steve Jobs suggesting that Apple would drop DRM in a heartbeat were it not for the limits imposed by the recording industry. Macworld's Philip Michaels, Jonathan Seff, and I discuss this issue as well as others in a roundtable discussion on DRM. Take it away, me. I'm now joined by Phil Michaels and John Seff from Macworld Magazine, and I'll let you guys introduce yourself. So not only will we learn your titles, but also understand who's talking. Yes, you'll hear the melodious sounds of my voice, and I'm Philip Michaels. I'm the executive editor of Macworld.com. And I'm John Seff. I'm the senior news editor of Macworld. And today we're sitting in the beautiful Macworld offices talking DRM, digital rights management. There's been a lot of talk recently in the news, particularly the Mac news, about digital rights management. This has kind of been a bugaboo for a lot of people using iTunes and other kinds of digital media. And suddenly, sort of out of nowhere, Apple's Steve Jobs comes out and says, you know, we would love to get rid of DRM if it weren't for those record companies because we have to protect things because they tell us to. 
And uh, generally, what do you guys think about well, this move? It, it wasn't entirely out of nowhere. Apple has been coming under pressure, particularly in Europe, uh, to open up its DRM to competitors and rivals. And that's a move that Apple doesn't want to do because it means putting its its proprietary technology out there in the in the wild. Um, so you have the situation in Norway where the uh, I, th- I, I think the official title is the ombudsman of uh, of Norway's consumer products. Is that how you say it in Norwegian? I don't know if you have. I don't even know if that's how you say it in English. And um, saying that Apple is not in compliance and gave them a I believe a March first deadline to to respond. To and I believe this is their third or fourth deadline that they've issued, and, and Apple sort of said, um, what? Yes, and you had the, the situation in France last year where the French Parliament was going to pass a law that would have required any company with DRM, specifically Apple, um, uh, to, to open up their, their technology to rival products. The Eventually a watered-down version of that bill was passed. But just the, the, the pressure is kind of on Apple, and I think... Uh, that's sort of what prompted Steve Jobs to do a rather unusual move, uh, a open letter posted on the website uh, uh, to kind of shift the focus away from the providers of the of the digital rights management technology into the uh, the companies that are actually demanding that it be in place. Now, but specifically, do you think this is really just buck passing on on Apple's part, or is there more to it? Uh, you know, I. I I, th- I think it's a little from column A and a little from column B. Uh, yeah. If I can pass the buck myself. Uh. <laughs> no, I, I, I would have to agree with that. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs has some good points. Um, he talks about how 90% or more of the music that is out there on CD is not protected. You can take buy a CD, you can rip it, um, and then you can do whatever you want with that. And the stuff that, you know got Kazaa and uh, Napster and all those other people in trouble wasn't, you know, music purchased legally from um, an online service. It was CDs that were ripped and then just posted online. And so, you know, the fact that they put so much time and effort into trying to protect these digital files when they do little to protect the uh, CDs, um, it really is this interesting dichotomy. I mean, of course, they can't really make new CDs that won't play in all the CD players out there because, you know, that would be more of a problem. But, you know, I, I think the fact that DRM doesn't work is really more of the point here. Here's where I think it's not buck passing, where it's actually Apple taking a stand. I think they're correct in saying, look, we, I, I, have, I have no trouble believing Steve Jobs would drop DRM tomorrow if he could continue to sell music at the iTunes store without, uh, without the record company saying boo. Where it is kind of uh, buck passing is saying, well, if you are unhappy with DRM, then, then write the, our good friends at Sony and, and uh, Universal and, and EMI. And as uh, as I think any person who's ever dealt with the music industry in the last twenty years or so knows, it, it's kind of like shouting into shouting into the the gale force wind, trying right. to get the record companies to respond. I mean, look how look how long it took um, them to and. This shows how, how, how very old that I am. Remember when CDs used to come in those, those extremely long, right, uh, long boxes? They still do when you go to Costco. Yeah, and, and it was just such a, uh, such a waste of, of cardboard and paper. And, and for years people would say, well, the record company should really not do that. And I, I forget how many decades passed before the record company said, eh, maybe we should not have the long boxes anymore. And I, I, it, it, 
in a way, it's almost the same with with DRM. You can you can request, you can say, "Hey, record companies, the DRM technology really isn't stopping anyone from from pirating. It's just making it more difficult for pirates, and they'll find a way to to, to get around your DRM." But uh, whether the record companies respond or not, I I don't know. Well, I think what what is interesting and where Apple's argument falls apart a little bit is that we're talking only really about the majors who are demanding DRM. Apple carries a lot of independent stuff as well that is being sold elsewhere. So if I'm getting it somewhere in an unprotected form and then I go to Apple and say, well, wait a minute, they sell it unprotected. How come you're not selling it unprotected? You say, we'd get rid of DRM in a second. Okay, here's your opportunity. These labels are not demanding that you have DRM. Instead, they're perfectly willing to give it without some kind of technology, and yet Apple still continues to put fair play around this. And so what does this really say about Apple's sincerity in that regard? I don't know. It's it's hard to say, but you know, I, I think that um, Steve Jobs feels confident that getting rid of DRM would obviously mean that you know any music purchased from any source, any online store would work with any player, and that you know, in one sense, that's sort of saying um, you know it opens up the market. And it's saying if I I want to buy an iPod, but I want to get my music elsewhere, then I don't have to buy it from Apple. But I think uh, Jobs feels like. You know, Apple has a very good combination of the iTunes and the iPod, which is some of what's getting them in trouble in Europe. But um, the fact that they have that good combination and they have a good store and they have such a good product that they feel like even if they open things up, they would still be okay. Right. I think the iTunes store is so well established at this point. That- and, and that would that would also help kind of push some of these other services, which, you know, are well known, but they're they're much smaller percentage of the music out there, um, it would kind of push them aside a little bit because they would actually have to compete on the same level and not just on, well, if you want to buy music from us, you have to use this player. If you want to buy a Microsoft you know, enabled player, then you get it from one of these companies. Right, and it's worth noting that Apple isn't the only company out there with digital rights management oh, right. technology when they're selling online music. Uh, you would know as well as us since you've, you've delved into the dark side of the Zune, uh, that what yeah. what those the requirements are if you if you purchase uh, music from from Microsoft. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the Zune uses a completely different DRM system than all previous Microsoft enabled yes, players. Yes, it's called not plays for sure, or doesn't really play for sure, or it plays for sure on the Zune, but nobody else. So right, I mean that's Microsoft's own digital rights management software, which was plays for sure, and the whole point of this was. Hey, look at Apple. It's a closed system. We're offering this music here, and you can play on it any player you want except your iPod, uh, and except the product that we make called the Zune, and then you, our system is just as closed as it but that. Is. But that's Microsoft for you. They don't make the hardware. You know, They sell an operating system, and they make their money by selling an operating system that works on as many hardware uh, on computers out there. So they're selling a technology that will work on any players out there. For them, it's not, you know, it's not about... Until the Zoom came along, it wasn't really about um, you know them producing something. It was here's here's something we came up with, and here's ways to make more money off of it. Right, right. Well, I'd, I'd like to turn to the point now that okay, let's say that that Steve Jobs' dream comes true. Is it really practical to strip DRM from music? I, I mean, the reaction from the music industry, by and large, was, "Are you nuts?" Yeah, I I I I think it was. Uh, uh, 
Brothman, Brothman, Brothman yeah, yeah from, who, from, from, from Warner, who who had the this this not logical, I believe, was his takeaway quote. Yeah, I think that was the takeaway, but I'm sure mm-hmm. that somewhere under his breath, uh-huh. there, was, there was something a little more colorful. Yeah, and because I do hear. You know, we get letters from the DRM people, or the anti-DRM people, who just saying, you know, if, if music was just cheaper and free, then everybody would benefit. And honestly, I don't see it. I think that DRM is necessary for artists to get paid. It's, hmm. Am I... I I mean, I, I kind of see it in a, in a different way, in that, you know, I buy music because I want to buy music. And even if it had no DRM, I would still buy it instead of... Um, you know, downloading it or taking it from someone else that already bought it. Um, and, you know, the majority of perhaps pirates out there, you know, are always going to do that. And I don't think it's necessarily going to increase just because you make it, a, you know, you take away that slight barrier. Because as I mentioned before, all that stuff is coming from seed, unprotected CDs to begin with. If I want an album, I could find it online right now within five minutes, download it and have it, have it for free. You know, and it doesn't matter that DRM exists um, for stuff from iTunes because that's not where it's coming from. So I don't, I don't know if it would actually like increase piracy um, as uh, you know in terms of um, album sales or anything like that. I think sometimes the uh, the executives at record labels can be a little disingenuous because they talk about you know the artists getting paid in this and that when they uh, do everything they can to get to nickel and dime the artists sure, out of sure. their own money too. Um, so I, I think everyone, you know, everyone has their own point of view and everyone is a little bit, a little bit fibbing on one side and a little bit truth telling on the other side. Um, but I think it would be a better musical world if we didn't have DRM. I, I seem to recall from back in the days when Napster was the monstrous fire lizard that was going to destroy the music industry as we knew it, that someone actually did a study and, and kind of advanced the theory that, in a way, music file sharing got people to buy records that they might not otherwise have bought because they they were able to sample uh, tracks without having to purchase the whole album. Um, I don't know if that would still be relevant in this world of a la carte uh, buy an individual track that iTunes kind of introduced. But uh, it, it does seem um, uh, to follow logically for me that if I could hear something as a track just out there online, I would be more inclined to buy that track from the iTunes Music Store, or more tracks from that artist, or the entire album from the you iTunes Store. You mean a 30 Store. second preview isn't enough for you? A 30 second preview is not enough because there's been many times that I've heard the 30 second preview, thought, hey, this is pretty good, and then the remaining three minutes of the song is kind of, kind of. Complete dreck. Oh yeah, kind yeah, of, kind they, of dire. They've got great algorithms at the iTunes Store that picks out the very best stuff <laughs> within 30 seconds and then the rest maybe. But, but you do raise a good point that, uh, what, what do the artists have to say about this? And that, that, that's a segment of the the music industry that we haven't heard from we've heard from jobs we've heard from record labels i would like to hear from the uh from the artists what they think of uh drm and whether they they think dropping drm would be a good move a bad move from their perspective and if only if only someone ran a news site that could that could publish such a story <laughs> actually uh, we have jim dalrymple tracking some people down and we we should have a, a story similar to that uh, very soon on macworld.com oh that's great because mm-hmm. i i do see reports every so often that an artist will come out or a band will come out and say honestly we don't like DRM any more than than other music consumers. We we like to be able to have our music available. Of course, we don't want people ripping us off, but this puts an artificial barrier between us and our audience. And 
as as you suggested, some feel that if people have an opportunity to sample music more than just 30 seconds, that they then will go out and, and buy that stuff. However, if you look at the kind of figures that the music industry is putting out about sales of CDs, they're plummeting. And they're well, not selling as much. I, I might argue that, that the CD sales are plummeting because the product that they're offering um, is a poorer and poorer quality, and that um, as Phil mentioned when he was talking about how slow they can be to respond to certain things, um, you know, having a, a $19 CD that has 40 minutes of filler on it because they get a band together that can put together three decent tracks um, is insulting to the public that is buying their product anyway. And um, I, I think that they're not necessarily giving people what they want, and that may have something to do with the declining sales. But Yeah, but, you know, I've heard that argument for years that, that music is just not as good today as it was whenever it was great for you. I mean, for me... The high point of music was maybe 1968 or something. Or yeah, you know when Chubby Checker was <laughs> was thrilling the kids exactly. with that twist. But I have found that since the iTunes Music Store exists, that I found a lot of great music out there now that I wouldn't have been exposed to because I don't go to record stores anymore. I, you know, I'm just sort of I'm, in, I'm intimidated by the guy behind the counter with all the tattoos and the black leather. So it's nice for me to shop at the iTunes store and get recommendations based on other music I own. So I'm not sure I buy the argument that there's a, there's more crappy music out there. Yes, there's always crappy music out there, but I don't know that that fully explains why CD sales are going down. I think it is easier to get music elsewhere, and, and people some people do take it. But I think part of it, though, is the a la carte thing that we're talking yeah. about, whereas um, I wouldn't drop $20 necessarily on a CD of a band I hadn't heard before mm-hmm. or I'd heard one track of anymore because uh, I don't necessarily expect the quality of the rest of it to be the same. Whereas, you know, doing a sample on the iTunes store, buying a couple tracks, and then later saying, you know what, this is actually pretty good. And then you then you walk down to, uh, you know, your local used store and you buy it for, for $5 as a used CD and then you have it all. Or you buy the rest of the track and it costs you a little bit more. But... I think it's sort of that, you know, being able to sample at it and buy the individual tracks. Because CD singles, you know, never went anywhere. Right. Um, like they, you know, did with, with records or even tapes, you know. So I, I think that, that 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 is a little bit of a difference there. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think the, the a la carte model is, is wonderful, you know. And again, going back to my prehistoric days where you could just go out and buy 45s, and, and that's they were you know seriously marketing these to you as the single. This is the greatest song on the album. And then the B side would sometimes be even better. Just wouldn't be a mass market. Yeah, or song. something that was never ever on the album. I, yeah. I collected a bunch of old Elvis Costello singles because they always had stuff on the B side you couldn't get anywhere else. So I, I like that part of the iTunes store a lot. And and maybe that is it that people do have the kind of choice now where they're saying I don't need the whole album because frankly. There are three great cuts on here, and I can tell that from the 30-second preview, and the rest of it, I don't care about. There are people who are under the age of 20 who just listened to that last thing and, and had no idea what you were talking about with 45s and B-sides. I know, and- I know. Well, those were the good old, my consort, that's all the way, yeah. So the, there's another aspect to this, which um, you know Steve touched on in his letter, um, basically to dismiss it, but in saying that you know we can't license our DRM to other people. Um, you know, saying let's say DRM isn't going anywhere, right? Um, and you know, people want to open up the the closed Apple system, the Fair Play system. Apple is saying that we can't do it because if there's a security breach and you know there's a leak of the code and this and that, then 
we're contractually obligated to fix it within a couple days or whatever it is. Um, and so he was basically saying that, that that's why we can't do it. And then the recording industry's response to that was, you know, we think Apple is a very smart company, and we think they could come if they put their minds to it. They could come up with something that. that I, they would I love fix what that. the the RIA's response to that was. It was Steve Jobs saying, "Well, we could uh, license our technology." Good point. The, the RIA going, "Great, good, do it now," because they're they're up for renegotiation right. on all these things. I am sure that if they went to the record companies and said. You know, we would love to license Fair Play, except this little thing in our contract, I'm sure that each and every one of them would strike that from the contract. Say, okay, fine, we will not make this so onerous for you. Because, really, that gives... If Apple is sincere about this, basically, licensing Fair Play gets rid of DRM, or at least levels the playing field to an extent, and and then the record companies can say, okay, good, well, our stuff is still protected... It's across the board now. Everybody gets to compete. And now we don't have to worry about being under the thumb of Apple. We can now be under the thumb of Rhapsody. And we can also be under the thumb of Zune and everyone else because no longer does Apple have any advantage except for the fact that they do a really great job. That they have the best player in store already. I, I do wonder how strong Apple's bargaining position really is on this issue because while they do have the the number one online store, and it just seems to me like it's a drop in the bucket uh, as far as the, the the record industry is concerned that they could that they could take their ball and go home if they if they, they could and I'm surprised they haven't honestly mm-hmm. but I think that's the future I think yeah. they look at iTunes and say this is where it's going CDs are going to die um, yeah. and we need to continue to make nice with these people until we find somebody else and I think that's what Microsoft is doing with Zoom where they've cut a deal. With Universal and said, okay, we'll give you a dollar from every Zoom we sell because we, we're trying to somehow get somebody else up there so Steve Jobs can't come to us and dictate terms for song prices, for example. We want variable song pricing, and Apple said, no, we're not going to do that, and has been able to get away with it so far. Well, and, and you know, once again, with the uh, record labels and record companies are slow to, to start new technologies. The whole reason that there is online music sales out there is because other companies went to the record labels and said, we have this technology, we want to get you on board. They would not be doing it themselves yet because they wouldn't be putting the effort into it because they'd want to be squeezing every last you know, penny out of the CD model if they could. And it's only because Apple is so successful that these people are seeing that online music actually works. Because before that, a lot of these late, you know record companies were thinking that this will never work, or we don't we don't have the time or money to put into it right now because we're in an old model and that's the way we like it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that they would still be trying to find ways to copy protect CDs, and I, I don't think they've stopped. That, that's yeah. that Sony uh, the, oh, yeah. root kit thing. I mean, that that was a disaster there, and. Um, but you know, but you talk about like you know, you can take a CD and you could rip a song and you can use it um, however you want, you know, within legal limits, of course. But um, I'm putting together a, a slide, a video slideshow project at home, and I wanted to use some of the uh, music that I had bought on the iTunes Store. Oh wait, I can't do it, you know, because it's protected and it's not an Apple application I'm using, so um, it, it won't work. And from a consumer point of view, is yeah, I guess I could burn it to CD and then re-rip it and then mm-hmm. use it as an MP3 and, and import it, but you know, that barrier there just, uh, you know, it sours you on the idea of DRM and it turns consumers off from what, you know, 
whoever wants it, it turns consumers off from that. And so, you know, what Steve Jobs has done with this open letter is that, he, you know, whether he's sincere or not, he's getting people behind him. And, you know, it's it's a brilliant marketing move mm-hmm. um, to do this. You know, it was very unusual to post this open letter, and who knows if he even wrote it. But um, it, it, it was just a brilliant move because it really said, you know, um, you know, I'm with you guys. You know, yes, I'm I'm the billionaire on the hill, but I'm with you guys, and I want I want what you want and what's best for you. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. I don't expect DRM to go away anytime soon, um, if at all. But you know, it's a it's a start, and having someone with that power, at least at this point, um, over the record industry, um, is you know is a good person to have on your side i i think it is safe to say you will see beatles songs on the itunes store before you see drm go away i think so yeah mm-hmm. and that may happen uh well we don't know anything but i'm no. i'm thinking before Soon. summer we mm-hmm. may see the beatles catalog up there now that now that apple's licensing the trademark back to uh, the beatles yeah that you know they, interesting. they they should be able to figure that stuff out yeah, and I wonder uh, what that will do for uh, for Beatles catalogs. You know, I mean, I think most of us already own that stuff. Or, but these will be remastered. I think. Again. I think that's it. Yeah, and maybe at a higher bid rate. But uh, that's for another discussion. I'd like to thank uh, Philip Michaels and John Seth very much for joining me for this talk about DRM. If you have any comments, please post them. Uh, look for the comments link at the end of our show notes, and uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say about it. And that wraps up the love edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by MYLB, small business management software. MYLB helps you to mind your own business smarter. I'd like to thank Dan Miller, Glenn Fleischman, Philip Michaels, John Seff, and, of course, you for listening. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, and technology news, views, and information at Macworld.com. See you next time.